Well, I'm excited. I always get excited for a new sermon series. I'm really excited for this sermon series. We've been talking about it for a little while, uh, just to let you know what was coming. How many of you took the challenge to read through the book of Hebrews in the last week? Only a handful of you were here last week. It was miserable outside last week. I'm so impressed that so many of you are here today, even though it's like a negative 30-something wind chill. You get a star for showing up at Linwood today. This is a good place to be. We're starting a new series titled Better Than Ever, and I challenge you to read through the book of Hebrews because uh, we're going to be walking through the book of Hebrews, kind of going ahead and coming back and looking at different ways in which Jesus is better than ever or superior to the things that had come before. And I'll be honest with you, this, uh, this series is partly inspired by a book that I read at the recommendation of somebody here at Linwood say, hey, you ought to think about this. And I'm so glad you did. And I read this book, and, uh, and I tell you, it, it's one of those few books that's really been sort of paradigm-shifting for me in the way that I think about a lot of things. And um, I was putting the jacket back on it today, and I read this quote from John Maxwell. And most of you have probably heard of John Maxwell. What I didn't realize until I became a Wesleyan pastor is that John Maxwell was a Wesleyan pastor. He was a pastor of one of the largest churches in the Wesleyan movement before he moved into the business sector with a very evangelistic approach to that. And he's been writing books on leadership and and working with churches and and developing leaders in churches around the world through his uh, company and his ministry. And this is what he read, and it, it really struck a chord with me. He said, this book challenged me to rethink my thoughts about the Old Testament, to discuss them with fellow believers about what I was learning, to do more connecting and less correcting of others, and to be salt and light, making things better and brighter. And that's my challenge to you as we go through this. Um, I was a little reluctant initially because I had heard some things about this book. Have you ever heard something about something uh, and, and it makes you wonder? And so I thought, I need to read it. I need to study it. I need to go through it. And make sure that I understand. And basically what happened is what happens all too often is a few, context, or a few statements were made and taken out of context. And people said, oh, this is bad. He's saying, you know, we got to get rid of the Old Testament. And that's not what he says at all. That's not what he says at all. And that's not what I'm going to say at all. And if you've been here for the last year or at any point in the last year, you know that I absolutely love this book. And that I read this book every day. And I read from the Old Testament and from the New Testament every single day. And I've been encouraging you to do the same thing. So I hope and I pray that you will be doing that if you haven't started already. And if you're already reading this book every day, then I would encourage you to pick this one up and read it too. But if you're not reading this one, don't read this one. If you're going to read anything, read this book. Read it every day and apply it to your life and ask God, do business with God on a regular basis, saying, God, what do you want me to do in light of what I have read from your word? With all that said, uh, I want to, uh, to launch this series with a message titled, New, Not Just Improved. New, Not Just Improved. And if you were here through the Devoted series or caught one or two of those messages, uh, you know that that was a theme that kind of came up a number of times in the Devoted series, this idea that Jesus came to bring something new. And that thing that he brought that was so new was absolutely irresistible. And that's why 2,000 years later, over 2 billion people have heard the gospel and have responded in faith to the gospel. And the gospel is a movement that continues to grow and expand throughout the world. And the new is important. But somebody in my life in the last week or two has said, man, you're really on a kick with this new thing. Aren't you, aren't you a little worried that, that people are going to kind of pick and choose what parts of the Bible and what parts of the faith that they want to, to, 
to live or, or believe and then get rid of the rest? And I said, yeah, I actually am really concerned about that. In fact, Jesus was really concerned that people would pick and choose parts of the old and sort of smuggle them into the new where it fit, where it allowed them to dislike or mistreat or, or even hate somebody else. And he came to bring something new and do away with or fulfill what was old, the old covenant. And that's what we're going to discover over the next weeks together as we go through this. Because Jesus was passionate about it. Paul was passionate about it. The author of Hebrews was passionate about it. And we see this popping up all throughout the New Testament that we have to make sure we understand that Jesus came to bring a new covenant, a new deal between God and man. And it's better. And we really want to be under the new covenant, not the old covenant. I hope that you will see that. And the reason that this is so important, to quote Andy Stanley, when you take bits and pieces of each, you don't get the best of either. You get the worst of both. And if we pick and choose, we'll be able to justify things like anti-Semitism or the hatred and violence that we've seen done in the name of Jesus, which has absolutely no basis whatsoever in the New Testament, in the New Covenant that he came to initiate. And so that is what we're going to be learning together. I have shared these math equations before, that Jesus plus nothing equals everything. In regards to your personal salvation and your righteousness before God and him saying, yes, you come and spend eternity with me, it's Jesus plus nothing equals everything. But the other equation also is important that we understand that Jesus plus anything equals nothing. That it's not Jesus and baptism, or Jesus and this, or Jesus and that. It's Jesus. Jesus is. His death on the cross is sufficient to bring us into right standing with God. And we don't add anything to that. We don't add anything to Jesus and his satisfaction of the penalty that we owed before God. It's really important that we understand that. And it's really important, and we see this popping up in the New Testament because there were people saying, no, it's Jesus and. It's, it's Jesus and circumcision. It's Jesus and table fellowship laws. It's Jesus and the Ten Commandments. It's Jesus and the Book of Moses, uh, or the Law and the Prophets, and so on and so forth. And it's interesting, you know, who was doing that? Who was it that was trying to add from the Old Testament into the New Covenant? Do you think it was the Gentiles? I don't. I I don't think they wanted more laws to follow. I don't think they wanted more rules. I don't think the men wanted to have surgery to become a follower of Jesus Christ. Think about it for a minute, okay? I think that would have been a really, really tough sell. It wasn't the Gentiles. It was the Jewish converts who were saying, well, we had to, so do you. We had to, so do you. We had to do all these things, so do you. And so there's a good reason that we're reading the book of Hebrews. As I read this book, I was drawn back into the book of Hebrews. I said, if if this is going to be covered anywhere in my Bible, it's going to be covered in the book of Hebrews. And so I read through the book of Hebrews, and I studied the book of Hebrews chapter by chapter, and I I came to the conclusion, he's right. What he's saying is right. And, And the point has been lost in large part in the broader stream of Christianity. And we've got to understand. We've got to understand how God's word fits together. And that we are in the new covenant and in the new 
arrangement with God. This, is, this subject matter is also dealt with extensively in the book of Galatians and in the book of Romans, and you see it as the main subject of the Jerusalem Council that you can read about in Acts chapter 15. So I would encourage you to, to trace this out, to study this out, and to see where this all starts to fit together. But we're going to start in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. It seemed like the very beginning is a very good place to start. It's on page 1862 of your Bible. If you have a, one of the few Bibles that are, are in the seats in front of you, if you bring your own Bible, it's kind of towards the end. It's almost, it's almost at the back of the book. Uh, and if, you, if you've not read Hebrews before, or if you haven't read Hebrews for a while, uh, it seems like every time I read Hebrews, it feels like I missed the prerequisite class. You know, like you're jumping into a conversation in the middle of the conversation, and I was like, wonder what the first half of the conversation was about. And uh, the reason is that it was written to Hebrew converts. That's how it gets its name. It was written to people who were born Jewish, who were born in the Hebrew culture, and had become Christians, and were now being enticed or told that they should either come back to Judaism or at least bring some of Judaism into Christianity. And so that's why this is so important for us to study as believers today. So I want to read the first couple of verses here, and then we're going to move uh, on to chapter 8. But this will really lay the groundwork for us. The first three verses of Hebrews chapter 1 tell us, In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. Ways. In the old covenant, in the older times, God spoke. He revealed himself to his people in various ways and at various times. Now, it's interesting to, to note that, that what we call the New Testament and the Old Testament, testament is actually a Latin word. And it's a Latin word that translates the Greek word for covenant, Covenant. So it could just as easily have been named the Old Covenant and the New Covenant in this book. So your Bible would have had two sections, the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. Uh, covenant and testament are interchangeable, and that's why we leave a last will and testament. It's a legal contract. Covenants were legal contracts. And we'll look at the different types of covenants uh, here in a minute. But that just helps you kind of understand uh, why this is so important. Verse 2, but in these last days basically from Christ on, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he, God, appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. So there are new methods, new revelation in Jesus Christ, new ways of speaking to us through Jesus, through his earthly ministry and through the teachings that were carried on by the apostles and by the disciples. There's a new covenant, has new methods and new ways of revealing God to man. Verse 3, Jesus is the Son. Jesus is the Son, and the Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. He is the exact representation of God's What we have in Christ that we read about in the Gospels, that we read about in the New Testament, the Jesus that it points to is the exact representation of God himself. The New Covenant reveals God to us in a purity and in a perfection through Jesus that before we did not have. Does that make sense? Now, while I'm reading this book and while I'm reading through Hebrews, I'm driving home one of these super, super cold days, and I see this image that's on the screen behind me. I'm looking out over a field, and it is a complete circle 
around the sun there, radiating out from it. And you know where my mind went immediately. The sun is the image or the radiance of God's glory. And uh, I shared that, and it was, it was great to, to just make that connection. And that's the image that I see. He casts light into all places, into all things. He illuminates all things. Jesus illuminates things that, that before were sort of shrouded in mystery. They're now made clear through Jesus Christ. And so that's important to understand. And the second half of that verse is really important to understand, that we're told that after he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty, which is God, in heaven. Why is it important to understand that Jesus sat down? Because that means that the work was finished. What's the last thing Jesus said on this earth before he breathed his last? It is finished. It's done. It's completed. There will not be another New covenant. He has ushered in the new covenant. He has paid for the sins of mankind once and for all. We're going to get into that really deeply later in this series. It is finished. And after that purification was made, after it was finished, he sat down. This is what we call in theology the finished work of Christ. And the best part of all of this is that this new covenant that we're going to be studying over the next eight weeks is better than ever. It's better than anything that came before it, and it's good, good news. How much better is it, you might ask? Well, let's look. Let's see what it has to say. The bottom line today is that Jesus really was and is better than ever. He was when he came, and he has been ever since, and he is today better than anything that came before. So I want you to turn a few pages over to Hebrews chapter 8. And we're going to look at verses 6 through 13. To give you a little bit of context here, the book of Hebrews is an interesting book in that we do not know who the human author of the book of Hebrews was. There's some speculation that it might have been Paul writing in a very different style because he was writing to uh, a Hebrew audience. Um, So there's some similarities between Romans 9, 10, and 11, which is where Paul kind of breaks and addresses the Hebrew people and then comes back in uh, to that letter. Most people don't agree that it would be Paul. They think it might have been Barnabas, who was the son of encouragement, who was a Jewish convert uh, that came into the faith. There there might have been uh, Silas. There's a number of different people that could be the author of Hebrews. But I would encourage you to keep in mind that whoever the human author was, the real author is God in heaven. That human authors are really only the pen in God's hand. So when you're reading through the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew was the pen in God's hand as he wrote that out. And as you're reading through the letters of Paul, Paul was the pen in God's hand. And God used those, those relationships and those personalities and those stories of those people in order to, to articulate and reveal himself in a powerful ways. But ultimately, God is the author of his word. And he says in verse 6, he's comparing whoever this author is, and I shouldn't even say he because perhaps it was a female. We don't know. But the author of Hebrews is saying in verse 6, he's comparing and contrasting Jesus, our new high priest, who goes before us into the Holy of Holies and makes sacrifice for our sins, much like the high priest in the Old Covenant would do. He's saying Jesus is a better high priest. He's a better high priest. How much better? He says, the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is a mediator is superior to the old one. And it is founded on better promises. So we have a better high priest administering a better covenant that is filled with better promises for you and for me and for everyone who has come after him. 
It is far superior. It's as much superior, the new covenant is as much superior as Jesus is superior to human beings. He was, he was fully human, but fully divine. He lived a life that no human being before or since has been able to live. And Jesus is that much superior, and that's giving us insight into how much superior the new covenant is to the old. And so we have to understand covenants a little bit, and we have to understand specifically the old covenant that Moses introduced and how it compares to the new covenant that Jesus came to introduce. Now, the Mosaic covenant that you read about in the book of Exodus was a conditional covenant between God and the nation of Israel. And the covenant was conditional in the sense that it was an I will if you will covenant. God says to the people, here are the laws. If you follow and obey the laws, and if you do these certain things when you mess up and don't obey the laws, then I will protect you. I will bless you. I will provide for you. You will be my people, and so on and so forth. It's a conditional covenant between God the Father and the nation of Israel. So from Exodus to Christmas... The Mosaic Covenant was in force, and it was a conditional covenant. And if you've read your Old Testament, you know that God did, but they didn't. God did his part. He did more than his part, repeatedly, and they repeatedly failed. They repeatedly worshipped other gods. They repeatedly broke his laws and broke his commandments and failed to make the sacrifices. And over and over and over, there was this cycle. And that was the, the necessity of Jesus is related to that covenant. Now, the new covenant that Jesus came, that is mediated by Christ, is an unconditional covenant. It's an unconditional covenant. God says, I will whether you do or not. I will whether you do or not. It's a covenant of grace. It's a covenant where one side is a recipient of grace, and the other side is a dispenser of grace. God is dispensing grace to us through the covenant that Jesus came. It's a fulfillment of God's covenant with Abraham. God made a covenant with Abraham back in Genesis chapter 12 that precedes the covenant that he made with Moses in Exodus chapter 3. Okay? So the Abraham covenant was an unconditional covenant of grace. It was God saying to Abraham in Genesis 12, 3, I will bless you. Whether you do anything for me or not, I will bless you and all the peoples of the earth will be blessed. Then he enters into a covenant with Moses and the nation of Israel in Exodus chapter 3 that was a conditional covenant, and I will if you will covenant, that carried us up to Christmas, essentially, carried us up to Jesus entering the picture. But he still, God still had a covenant with Abraham that gets fulfilled in Jesus. The Mosaic covenant fits inside that. It's really important that we understand this, okay? It's really important that we get this. Because Galatians 3 ties it all together perfectly for us. Galatians 3.29 tells us, put it up there because I clipped my Bible together. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Which promise? The Genesis 12.3 promise that God made to Abraham that said, I will bless all the people of the earth through you. Not just the nation of Israel, which is his deal with Moses in Exodus chapter 3. So this is really, really something. Basically, we get brought in to the covenant that God made with Abraham when we accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. And then we are blessed, and God promised to bless us, and not just us, but to bless all the peoples of the earth through us, because we are now Abraham's seed. 
This is good news. This is really good news. It's good news for you, and it's good news for the you next to you. It's good news for the world around you because God wants to bless them through you. God wants to share the good news of his new covenant through you into them, and they are now able to be recipients of the good news that they will be blessed and that all the world can be blessed through them. This is really, really good stuff. I want to continue. Verse 7. For if there had been nothing wrong with that first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. He's referring to the Mosaic covenant, the covenant with Moses and the nation of Israel. And he's saying there was something wrong with it. The Bible is basically saying there was something wrong with another part of the Bible. It was incomplete that Jesus completed it. Jesus perfected it. Jesus filled it out and made it radiate God's glory into the world. So what was the problem with the old covenant? Well, it wasn't God. Okay, It wasn't God's problem. It was the people of Israel. We see this in verse 8. In verse 8, But God found fault with the people and said, The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with the forefathers when I took them by the hand and led them out of Egypt, because they did not remain faithful to my covenant, and I turned away from them, declares the Lord. So he's making a new covenant covenant with new people. Israel was brought in. Remember Jesus said, I came first to the house of Israel. I came first to the house of Israel, but I will be a light to the nations, a light to the Gentiles. Even Paul, when Paul gets brought in and becomes the apostle Paul, and he gets sent out, where does he go first? He goes to the synagogue, and he starts with the people of Israel to proclaim good news to the people of Israel. And when they reject it, then Paul says, now I will go to the Gentiles. And Paul became the apostle to the Gentiles, to the world. We use these, these, this language, and it just occurred to me, maybe you don't understand, what's the difference between a Jewish person and a Gentile? Well, Jews were the nation of Israel, the people of God. Gentiles were everybody else, everybody else that was not part of the nation of Israel. So it started with, this new covenant started with the people of Israel. And Jesus was sent first to them, but also to everyone else. And Paul was sent first to them, but also to everyone else, so that the whole world could be blessed through him. Continue in verse 10. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds, and I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. And I love that he says it's not just going to be an external law anymore. It's going to be in our minds and in our hearts. It's not going to be just outward adherence to a written code, but there will be an inward understanding and an inward desire to fulfill the law. Jesus speaks about this in the Sermon on the Mount. If you read Matthew chapter 6, 7, and 8, he says, you heard in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, you heard in the law that you need to do this and this and this, but I say to you, and each time he takes it from the outward and moves it inward. He says, you heard you should not commit adultery, but I say to you, don't even commit adultery with your eyes or with your heart. You said, don't kill somebody in the law. Yeah, don't kill somebody. But I say to you, don't even hate them. Don't even speak poorly about them. He moves it from the outward to the inward. And we see God prophesying this to the prophet Jeremiah. That's what we're quoting here in the book of Hebrews, that this was going to happen. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother saying, Know the Lord, because they'll all know me from the greatest of them, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will forgive their wickedness, and I will remember their sins no more. He's going to forgive their sins. He's going to remember their sins no more. And that passage always 
kind of takes my breath away. Do you know why? Because God is eternal, all-knowing, all-wise. He sees everything all at once. He's outside of time. And this God that knows everything and sees everything all at once says, I will remember their sins no more. Let that blow your mind for a minute. That if you are in Christ, if you are a participant in this new covenant, if you opt in to the new deal that God is making with the world, then he says, I'm going to remember your sins no more. I who am apart from time, I who am all-knowing and omniscient and omnipresent, all places at once, will remember the sin no more. It's like it didn't even happen. It's amazing. It's really, really good news. And finally, in verse 13, by calling this new covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete. And what is obsolete and aging will soon disappear. What? Did the Bible just call part of the Bible obsolete? Well, yeah, the old, the old covenant, the old deal is obsolete. And that, that kind of made me sit up straight and say, now what in the world is he saying? What in the world is the author of Hebrews saying? Then you look in Galatians, and he says the same thing in Galatians. You look in Romans, he says the same things in Romans a couple of places. You look in, in Acts chapter 15, when the early church leaders were saying, what are we going to do with these Gentiles who are coming to faith? And they say essentially the same thing over and over. And, and you, what, what I had to understand is that we think obsolete is a bad thing. Obsolete doesn't mean bad, does it? Obsolete does not mean bad. I'll prove it to you. What do we got here? You know what this is? Vinyl, right? Vinyl's not bad, is it? This is John Denver right here. It's on vinyl. You know what was a big deal about vinyl when vinyl first came out? You could pick your songs. Before vinyl, you had to listen to the radio and somebody else picked your songs. But when they created vinyl, you could buy a record player and you could put it up in your house and you could buy the songs and you could play the songs you want when you wanted. That was a big deal. It was new, right? It was new. And then you know what came along after vinyl? Eight tracks. Eight tracks, right? Olivia Newton-John right here. You know what was so cool about eight tracks? You could fit an eight-track player in your car. My uncle had one in his motorhome. We drove from Erie, Pennsylvania to Orlando, Florida listening to eight tracks because that was all he had. I don't know if he had Olivia Newton-John or not. But then along came something else. Because eight tracks, you could only pick eight tracks, right? Well, then the cassette tape came along. You know what was so cool about cassette tapes? Not, they had two sides. You could fit more songs on them, and you could create your own mixtapes. How many of you did that? You get a bunch of different tapes, and you put them in, and you could have a tape recorder, and you could pick two or three songs off of this album and two or three songs off of that album, and you could make mixtapes, and, and you could make a mixtape for your boyfriend that had all the songs that you loved, and you could make a mixtape for your guys when you were going to go work out in the gym, and it was all the rock and roll, and you could make mixtapes, and it was portable. It was even more portable because you get a Walkman that was about this big, about the size of this 8-track, actually, and you could put it on your hip. And you could make your mixtapes, or you could buy albums, you could take them anywhere you wanted. Now, all three of these are really cool, but what are they today? Obsolete, right? When was the last time you played vinyl? Unless you're like hardcore, purist, you probably haven't played vinyl in a while. And I bet you it's been years since any person in this room played an 8-track. Right? It's obsolete. Is it bad? No. But something better came along. And 
one of the things, like for my generation, like CDs were a big deal because now it's, it's much better quality. You go from, this was Michael W. Smith, by the way. You go from, you go from uh, sort of a, I'm losing the term. You went to digital audio here. So the quality went, got way better. You could still create your mixtapes. You could get, I had a six-disc CD player in my car. I had a 110-disc CD player in my, in my room, and so I could put all my CDs in there, and i just push a button, and it would play the songs I wanted, and I could create playlists and everything else. And, and yet this is even on the verge of being come, becoming obsolete. You know why? Because the iPod and the cell phone. You know how many hours of music I have on my phone? Something like 65 and I, I mean, that's not even, I could have so much more. I just haven't bought that many uh, albums through iTunes and, and so on and so forth. But you can put thousands of songs. When this first came out, Steve Jobs said, a thousand songs in your pocket. And the iPod was revolutionary. It was brand new, and it's making CDs obsolete. They're a dime a dozen. You can go to a secondhand store, and you can buy as many CDs as you want for a buck a piece. And you can't sell them anymore. You can't sell them anymore. So obsolete isn't bad. It means something better has come along. It means something better has come along. And another way of thinking about this is this is my phone, and uh, I have a special relationship with my phone. We're almost always in the same room. Uh, I carry it in my pocket 90% of my waking hours. If I'm wearing pants, like sweatpants at home that don't have pockets, I put a jacket on so that I can keep my phone in my pocket. It stays on my bedside next to me. And so for the last two years, this phone and I have been very, very close. But if I went to the Verizon store, or any other store, not a plug for Verizon, and I got a phone tomorrow, what would this instantly become? My old phone, right? My old phone. Not quite obsolete. I might give it to the kids so that they could play games on it or something like that, or listen to music, or, or those types of things. But it goes from being my phone to being my old phone as soon as something better comes along. So we have to think about this a little differently. I'm not trashing the Old Testament. I'm not saying you should rip it out of your Bibles. I'm saying you should read it every single day, and you should learn from it, and you should be inspired by it, and the stories and faith that, and courage that people had in a God that had not been perfectly revealed to them, as Jesus has been perfectly revealed to us. The Old Testament is a gold mine. There is wisdom there. It is rich. But what we can't do is find the little places in the Old Testament that give us a right in our minds to dislike or mistreat or hate somebody else and smuggle them into the New Testament. Because Jesus was very clear, and Paul was very clear, we must not do that. And the early church was not devoted to the Old Testament. They were not devoted to the law and the prophets. In fact, there were Christians, and there was a growing and thriving Christian movement for 300 years before there was a Bible. Have you ever thought about it that way? That the scripture that we have today that combines the Old Testament, the Jewish scriptures, the Hebrew Bible, with the New Testament, the Gospels, the letters of Paul and John and James and so forth, didn't exist until the 4th century after Jesus died. So somehow they were able to present a gospel, a good news to the world that was irresistible to the point that millions and millions of people without internet, without news publications, without books, without anything, it just spread because it was good news and it was irresistible to the people that were hearing it. And they weren't devoted to the law and prophets, they were devoted to the apostles' teaching 
We looked at this at the beginning of the Devoted series on February 3rd. If you weren't here on February 3rd, you really need to listen to that message. You really need to listen to that message because what the apostles were teaching was different. It was new. It was better than anything that had been taught before. And that's why the church flourished. And that's why the church grew the way that it did. And the apostles were not teaching the 600 commandments of the Hebrew law. They weren't even teaching the Big Ten. Do you know what the apostles were teaching? Do you know what their teaching centered on? It was two things. The resurrection of Jesus Christ, the perfect life, the sinless death that paid the penalty for our sins, and the resurrection from the dead. That was one thing. And the other thing was the new command that Jesus gave. You want to know what the new command was? Maybe some of you already know what the new command was. Go to John 13, page 1675. Verse 34 tells us what the new command was. Jesus says, a new command I give you. When did he say this? Right after communion, right after the Lord's Supper, right after that last supper when he said, I have eagerly desired to partake this Passover with you. Why? Because it was the last Passover because he had a new covenant. And he says, this cup This cup, the cup of redemption in the Jewish Passover feast, the third cup, the cup of redemption, this cup is the new covenant in my blood poured out for you. We studied this a couple weeks ago in the devoted series, devoted to the breaking of bread, to the Lord's Supper. Then he says, after all that, a new command I give you, a new command to go with the new covenant, a new command I give you, love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. How are we supposed to love one another? It's right there in the second half of verse 34. As I have loved you, so you are to love one another. How has he loved us? Unconditionally, completely, by laying down his life for us. That's the measure of love. One command. It's a lot simpler. It is not a lot easier. It's a lot simpler, and it is much more demanding. There are no loopholes in the new covenant. There are all kinds of loopholes in the old covenant, and the Pharisees and the teachers of the law mastered them. They figured them all out, and they lived by them. They lived by the loopholes. There's no loopholes in love one another. And so the rest of the New Testament, Paul comes to flesh all that out. And there's over 50 different one another statements in the New Testament that Paul writes, and he was teaching us how to love one another. He was teaching us how to one another, one another. What does love look like? How do we love each other as Christ has loved us? How do we forgive one another as Christ has forgiven us? And so when Jesus says that, that there's a new commandment, it fulfills the two greatest commandments from the Old Testament. You remember that part when a, a, a lawyer basically comes to Jesus trying to trip him up? He says, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus answers him in a way that he wasn't expecting. Jesus says, well, the greatest commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And a second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. You've heard that story, right? The second is like it part had never been combined with the love your Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength before Jesus. And he's basically saying there's not one greatest commandment. There's two. There's vertical love for God. And horizontal love for your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus loves us the way he loved God. Completely. Heart, mind, soul, and strength. He loves us with all his heart, mind, soul, and strength. And he proved it 
on the cross. You can't love God without loving others is what Jesus was saying. You can't be good with God if you're not good with others. You can't be good with God at the expense of being good with others. What did Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount? If you're there to give your gift at the altar and there you remember that somebody has something against you, leave your gift at the altar and go and be reconciled. This is crazy. People traveled from hundreds of miles away. They stood in lines and they waited and waited and waited to get to the altar to give their gift. And he's saying, if you get there and you realize somebody has something against you, you realize that you're out of, out of fellowship. You leave your gift, go be reconciled, then come and give your gift. This was a big deal. He's saying you can't be right with God and wrong with people. They go hand in hand. We love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. We love our neighbor as ourselves. That is the New Testament ethic. That's what it means to love one another as Christ has loved us. Paul says something very similar in Galatians 5, 6. He says that circumcision and uncircumcision no longer means anything. The only thing that matters is faith expressing itself in love. And when we're talking about circumcision and uncircumcision, that's essentially a parallel phrase for the Old Covenant, the Old Testament. Because people were going behind Paul and going to his Gentile converts and saying, you got to have surgery. you got to eat like this. you got to act like this. You can't do these things anymore because you're now a believer. And Paul's saying, no, that's gone. That's the Old Covenant. There is a new covenant, and it's faith expressing itself in love. Faith in God expressing itself in love for other people. And it's really important that we get this, or else we will be tempted to smuggle a few pieces in from the Old Covenant and then mistreat people or look down on people or shame people because of those Old covenant practices. And all this mixing and matching, all the hatred and violence in the church has made Christianity utterly resistible to the world around us. Do we agree? That the hatred that's been done in the name of Jesus Christ has become to a point that people don't want anything to do with the church. The church that used to be irresistible, people couldn't wait to get in, even at serious peril to themselves and their families and serious loss that they might face by associating themselves with Christ and associating themselves with Christians. And so we've got to make sure that we don't fall into that trap because loving one another and faith expressing itself in love is still overwhelmingly attractive. It's irresistible to the world around us. And I believe that Christians should be people that anybody who knows you would say, I'm not sure I believe what they believe, but I sure hope my daughter marries a guy like that. Or I'm not sure I believe what they believe, but I wish all my employees were that honest, worked that hard, had that much integrity. I'm not sure I believe all this stuff about Jesus and sin and that whole worldview. But I would, I would love to have a Christian as a neighbor. And unfortunately, that's not the case today. But I believe it could be. And I believe it should be. And I hope that you agree. Because Jesus and what he came to bring really was and is better than ever. There's been nothing like it since. And we want to lean into that and learn about it and figure out how to apply it to our lives so that he can be irresistible in us to the world around us. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for revealing yourself to us through Christ 
in the way that you did. We thank you for what may be new ideas to many of us. And we pray that you'll give us grace to understand them, to search your word, to ask you what you would have us do in response. And God, may you be irresistible in us and through us to the world around us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.